Red Salute. Welcome to the Manifestering Podcast. If you want to support this project, which allows me more time to produce and release content, you can do so on my website, manifesteringpodcast.com. There's a link to my Patreon, as well as a donation button that allows you to just donate through the site itself. You can also do so on my anchor.fm page. Just search for Manifestering Podcast. Thanks so much for helping me keep revolutionary media alive. Red Salute, welcome back to the Manifesting Podcast. We're going to finish our read-through of Rethinking Socialism in this episode. If you want a physical copy for yourself or a group you're working with, just go ahead and hit me up on Twitter at ManifestPod. And if you want to support the show at all, which is greatly appreciated but not at all necessary, go to anchor.fm, look for my show, and just hit support. All right, let's get back to the book. Four, commodity production and the law of value during the socialist transition. The socialist transition is a period of time when the production of commodities will be gradually phased out together with the phasing out of wage, labor, and capital. This means that during the socialist transition, commodity production still exists and the law of value is still at work. In a country like China, the low level of development, especially in the countryside, presented special problems and challenges during the transition from commodity production to non-commodity production. With the advancement of the productive forces in the 60s and 70s, new contradictions developed. We will explain these contradictions below. Within the state sector, it was much easier to place restrictions on commodity production and to implement policies that went against the law of value. Earlier, we explained that the implementation of socialist projects in the state sector made it possible for each productive unit and enterprise to change the purpose of production from value valorization to producing useful products in order to meet the needs of the people. Under the socialist project, the state, not the productive unit, owned the means of production, and this meant that the exchange between the different productive units no longer had to be based on equal value exchange. For example, when the state decided to industrialize the western provinces, it relocated engineers and workers, as well as machinery and equipment, from the technologically advanced factories in Shanghai to the newly built factories in the West. The state did not have to compensate the Shanghai factories for their loss of resources. When the state transferred technology and other productive resources from one state-owned enterprise to another, it was able to disperse technology from an area like Shanghai to technologically backward areas all over China. This was actually described by the people as, quote, having an old hen laying eggs all over the place, unquote. The transfer of resources from the more developed areas to the less developed areas benefited the country as a whole, and it was against the law of value. These transfers of resources could not have been done under a capitalist development, because following the law of value, resources only flow to areas that would earn them higher rates of profits. However, when workers and engineers were transferred from an area of higher standard living like Shanghai to an area of lower standard living like Xi'an, it involved personal sacrifices. During the time of high revolutionary tide, people gave enthusiastic support in the spirit of building a new socialist China. This exemplifies what we stated earlier, that communist elements exist during the socialist transition. However, when the tide died down, the resistance to transfers also grew. Thus, the differences in the levels of development presented challenges for socialist development. Capitalist development, on the other hand, could only intensify these differences as the development in the past 16 years showed. During the socialist transition, there were other contradictions within the state sector. We explained earlier that there was the contradiction between the manager and the managed, and that between the technical experts, such as engineers, and the ordinary workers. The Anshan Constitution was a concrete way to resolve these contradictions that resulted from the division of labor within the state enterprises. However, the division of labor within these enterprises reflected the division existing in society at large. Later, we will explain how the educational reform during the Cultural Revolution intended to resolve these contradictions. To a certain extent, during the socialist transition, it was also possible for the state to influence the development in the collective sector through pricing, investment, and taxation policies. China's experience showed that the exchange between the state sector and the collective sector did not have to strictly follow the law of value. 
Actually, the pricing, investment, and taxation policies were used deliberately to help the development of productive forces in agriculture, thus solidifying the worker-peasant alliance. When Mao wrote on the ten major relationships in April 1956, he placed the relationship between heavy industry on the one hand and light industry and agriculture on the other as number one of the ten. In the discussion, Mao stressed the importance of agriculture and light industry, and he cited the grave problems in both the Soviet Union and Eastern European countries that resulted from their lopsided stress on heavy industry to the neglect of light industry and agriculture. Mao was very clear in his writing on the ten major relations that to bring about a greater development of light industry and agriculture, investment in agriculture and light industry as a percentage of total investment should be adjusted upward. From the second five plan beginning in 1957 until 1978, investment was adjusted so that agricultural investment as a percent of total state investment increased. The state also expanded the production of agriculture inputs by allocating more investments in industries that produce fertilizers, pesticides, and agricultural machinery. In addition, the state reduced its budgetary dependence on agriculture by reducing agricultural taxes as a percentage of total state revenue. During the same period, the state also gradually increased its expenditures on agriculture, both in absolute amounts and in relation to its total expenditures. Moreover, the state made adjustments to improve the terms of the trade for agricultural products by reducing prices of industrial products sold to the communes and at the same time increasing prices of agricultural products bought from them. The prices of agricultural input, as well as the prices of consumer goods the peasants paid in terms of wheat, declined steadily during the two decades between 1958 and 1978. As a result of these policies, the agricultural sector was able to mechanize its production and expand rapidly. However, since commodity production still existed and the law of value was still at work, the state could not exert unlimited influences. In the exchange between the two sectors, the state needed to recognize the existence of the law of value and make use of the law of value through the above-mentioned policies, but the state could not ignore the law of value. Mao said that instead of following the law of value blindly as in a capitalist system, the state could make use of the law of value to its own advantage. Mao used the example of pork production to illustrate his point. He said that pork production in China was not regulated by the rise and fall of market prices, or supply and demand. Rather, it was decided according to an economic plan. In other words, the economic plan, instead of the law of value, regulated pork production. However, in order for people in the cities to have pork to eat, peasants had to raise a certain number of pigs each year. When the state set the price it paid to the peasants for the pig and the price of feed it sold to the peasants, it must adjust the prices of both to make it worthwhile for the peasants to raise pigs. If the price of pigs was set too low and or the price of feed was too high, peasants would simply refuse to raise pigs. During the early years of the communes, much of the production, after paying taxes to the state, was consumed by commune members and the surpluses were then sold to the state. With the proceeds received from their sales, the teams, brigades, and communes bought from state enterprises industrial products they needed for production and consumption. Since not much of what they produced was for sale, commodity production in the collective sector was very limited. As productive forces developed, however, commodity production in the collective sector expanded both in absolute quantities and in relation to total agriculture production. The expansion of commodity production in the collective sector presented new problems and new challenges. As our earlier analysis showed, the brigades and communes that were able to build industries were very eager to expand their industrial production and to sell their products for profits. These brigades and communes were producing commodities, and thus their production was dictated by the law of value. This meant that the brigades and communes wanted to speed up capital accumulation by increasing their investment in the most profitable enterprises. They did not welcome the restrictions placed on their investment by the state. From the analysis above, one can see that there were many contradictions within the Chinese society during the socialist transition. Contradictions existed within both the collectives and the state sectors, and they also existed between the collective and state sectors. However, according to Mao, one should not only look at the negative aspects of these contradictions, because contradictions are also the forces that move the society forward. We can fully appreciate what Mao meant when we study the development of the Chinese society. Contradictions existed in each stage of development, and when contradictions were successfully resolved, the development moved on to a new stage. However, by the mid-1970s, the rapid development of productive forces in the countryside and the expansion of commodity production in the collective sector created new contradictions. 
These contradictions were not antagonistic in nature, and they could have been successfully resolved if there had not been fierce struggle between the pro-socialist and pro-capitalist class forces. However, when Mao's health took a turn for the worse in the mid-1970s, the pro-socialist class forces lacked the leadership in their struggle against the pro-capitalist forces and to implement appropriate policies to resolve the above-mentioned contradictions. These contradictions later transformed from non-antagonistic to antagonistic. This transformation aided Deng in the implementation of his capitalist projects. When we examine the contradictions within and between the state and collective sectors, we can see that these contradictions reflected the differences in the levels of development within and between the sectors. During the socialist transition, there were several important policies that were designed to resolve these contradictions. We will not go into a detailed discussion of all these policies, but we want to briefly mention a few here. For example, the pricing, investment, and taxation policies mentioned above were policies intended to resolve the contradictions between the state sector and the collective sector. If the socialist transition had continued, these policies would have helped further advance the mechanization of agriculture. If that had been the case, it would have been possible to raise the accounting unit from the team to the brigade and then to the commune. As the brigade owned more and more large agricultural machinery for all the teams to use, each team within the brigade would have been more willing to give up its smaller accounting unit. When the productivity of collective labor became high enough, higher value for each workpoint, through mechanization, capitalist project, such as the quote, three freedom and one contract, unquote, would become a less attractive alternative to peasant households. This is not to say that only these capitalist elements had major influences in China during the socialist transition. On the contrary, communist elements such as what happened in Dazai and many other places had tremendous influences on China's development. Under the leadership of Chen Yangqi, people in Dazai overlooked their own short-run self-interest and worked together as a brigade to overcome the most severe natural adversity to achieve high production in the beginning with only very primitive tools. In the 1970s, during the, quote, learning from desire, unquote, movement, many of the brigades and communes in the spirit of cooperation and hard work accomplished massive-scale land work and infrastructure construction. Their hard work practically changed the landscape of rural China and paved the way for further mechanization. As we said earlier, during the socialist transition, both communist elements like Dazai, Daqing, and tens of thousands of other examples, and capitalist elements, the production of commodity and the law of value, existed at the same time. The education reform during the Cultural Revolution was another example of policies designed to resolve the contradictions in Chinese society. The education system in China had a long tradition of educating a small group of intellectual elite who looked down on physical work. After the revolution, even though it was true that more young people from workers and peasants' families were able to get more education, and that many even had the opportunity to go to college, the basic educational structure remained pretty much the same. Before the Cultural Revolution, universities had continued to select students based on entrance examination scores, and college graduates had continued to be a small, compared to the total population, group of elites who were supposed to do the thinking for the workers and peasants. The division of labor within the factories reflected the outcome of this old education system. During the Cultural Revolution, the education reform, on the other hand, changed the eligibility requirements for college admission so that only those young people who had worked in the factories and were on the farms could be admitted. On the other hand, it raised the education level in the countryside when junior high schools were established by communes and high schools were established by the counties. Also, young people in the cities were sent to the countryside to work with the peasants so they could experience the hard life of the other 80% of the Chinese people. The education reform helped bridge the educational gaps among China's youth. There were many other aspects of education reform that we cannot go into at this point. Other major policies during China's socialist transition included the policy that emphasized self-reliance and long-term development goals. These goals could only be pursued with the implementation of socialist projects. In contrast with these goals, Deng's reform programs have relied on foreign capital. As a result, China's development has lost its autonomy is increasingly under the control of international monopoly capital. Deng's reforms programs only focus on short-run profit maximization and totally disregard the negative consequences of capitalist development and dominance of foreign capital in the long run. 5. The Chinese Communist Party During the socialist transition before 1978, 
the class forces that favored capitalist transition never ceased in their attempts to push forward the capitalist projects. These class forces often found their representatives in the position of power within the Chinese Communist Party. As it happened in China, the pro-capitalist elements within the Chinese Communist Party eventually took control of the party and the state machinery. In China, the class struggle that has gone on since the beginning of the People's Republic to the current time is revealed by the competition between the socialist and capitalist projects. It was the pro-capitalist elements within the Chinese Communist Party that pushed forward the capitalist projects. The class elements of the CCP since its formation deserve to be carefully studied elsewhere. We only attempt to present here a few of our observations. Therefore, what follows is not a comprehensive study of the CCP. A. The leadership of the Chinese Communist Party and the New Democratic Revolution. In the first place, China's revolution led by the Chinese Communist Party included both the Democratic Revolution and the Socialist Revolution. When Mao wrote the New Democratic Revolution in 1940, he explained the difference between the New and the Old Democratic Revolution. The difference was that even though both were aimed at overthrowing the long overdue feudalism in its land tenure system, the ultimate goal of the New Democratic Revolution was to reach communism. Therefore, only the Chinese Communist Party, as the vanguard of the proletariat, could lead the revolution to its success. Land reform was the major program of the 1911 Democratic Revolution led by Sun Yat-sen of the Nationalist Party, KMT Kuomintang. The goal of this old democratic revolution was only to destroy feudalism, but it eventually failed. One major reason for its failure was that China had a very weak bourgeoisie that could not provide the leadership needed for the democratic revolution. The Nationalist Party, later led by Chiang Kai-shek, betrayed the revolution by allying itself with the landowning class and foreign capital. Chiang's surrender to the landowning class and foreign capital, as well as graft and corruption within the KMT, left no hope for many young intellectuals who sincerely wanted to reform China. The only alternative left for these patriotic youth was the Communist Party. Many of them joined the CCP. During the war against Japan, large numbers of patriotic youth went to Yan'an to demonstrate their support for the CCP. Many members of the Chinese Communist Party at the leadership level did not fully understand or agree with Mao's analysis of the New Democratic Revolution. They saw that China's revolution was partitioned in two separate phases, the democratic phase and the socialist phase. Some members of the CCP, led by Liu Shaoqi and Deng Xiaoping, supported the first phase of the revolution but opposed the second. Therefore, when the land reform concluded, these Communist Party members clearly saw the opportunity for further development toward capitalism. Thus, they supported land reform, but strongly opposed the progression from land reform to collectivization of agriculture. To disguise their opposition to this socialist project, they claimed that collectivization was putting changes in the relations of production too much ahead of the development of the productive forces. They argued that the productive forces had to be developed first, so mechanization should come before collectivization. However, we explained earlier that after land reform, most peasants had trouble carrying out even simple reproduction, let alone any expanded reproduction. These party members continued to oppose all socialist projects in both the state and collective sectors by pushing through their capitalist projects, as we explained earlier. According to Mao, however, these two phases, the democratic and the socialist of revolution, could not and should not be so clearly separated. That was the reason for naming it the New Democratic Revolution. The goal of the New Democratic was toward communism, and thus it was led by the proletariat, while the goal of the Old Democratic Revolution was to establish capitalism. According to Mao, even though there were two phases in the New Democratic Revolution, the two phases should not be treated as they were two separate identities. The development in the phase one was to prepare for the development in phase two. The goal of struggle during the first phase is not to be limited to accomplishing the democratic revolution only, but rather to carry on the struggle to the socialist revolution. Mao explained this clearly when he disagreed with the interpretation of the Chinese revolution in the Soviet's political economy, a textbook. The textbook said that the nature of China's revolution right after the establishment of the People's Republic was democratic. Mao argued, quote, During the War of Liberation, China solved the tasks of the democratic revolution. It took another three years after 1949 to conclude the land reform, but at the time the republic was founded, we immediately expropriated the bureaucratic capitalist enterprises, 80% of the fixed assets of our industry and transport, and converted them to ownership by the whole people, unquote. He continued, quote, 
but it would be wrong to think that after the liberation of the whole country the revolution in its earliest stage has only in the main the character of a bourgeois democratic revolution and not until later would it gradually develop into a socialist revolution unquote. however some leaders within the ccp disagreed with mao from the very beginning Liu and Deng had their own agenda for capitalist development. B. The role of the Communist Party in a post-revolutionary society. History shows us that Marxist-Leninist parties have won many major victories in seizing state power during the past 80 years. One example after another shows the Communist Party as the vanguard of the proletariat, effectively organizing the working class and the masses in engaging in armed struggle and in seizing state power. At the time of revolution, the goal of these communist parties was to develop first a socialist and eventually a communist society. However, history also shows us that one case after another at certain points, after the communist party seized power, the party turned against the class interest of the proletariat and changed the direction of the transition, reversing from communism to capitalism. The Chinese Communist Party is not an exception. We are not attempting to give a complete analysis of the transformation of the CCP after the revolution here, Rather, we hope to clarify some important points. For each of the past revolutions, after the Communist Party seized power, it had two roles. One, to remain in power and to administer the state apparatus, and two, to act as the vanguard of the proletariat. These are two sides of a contradiction. The Communist Party has to stay in power in order to act as the vanguard of the proletariat, yet to act as the vanguard of the proletariat, the Communist Party also has to continue relinquishing its power. For many reasons still yet to be further explored, in one country after another that succeeded the revolution, at some point staying in power became the only goal of the Communist Party. When the Communist Party no longer acts as the agent for change, the link between the proletariat and the Communist Party was broken. When that happened, the Communist Party began to use the dictatorship of the proletariat to justify the dictatorship of the Communist Party. However, there involved a development process to reach this point. The concrete experience of China may shed some light on this discussion. Throughout this paper, we have tried to identify the reasons for revisionism in China. We believe that because of Mao Zedong's leadership in advancing the revolutionary theory and practice, China went a few steps further in her struggle against revisionism. From the very beginning, Mao had a view on post-revolutionary Chinese society and the role of the Chinese Communist Party in it, which was very different from that of the chief opponent, Liu Shaoqi. After the nationalization of the means of production, Liu viewed the principal contradiction as a struggle between the, quote, advanced social system, meaning the state ownership of the means of production, and the, quote, backward social productive forces, unquote. Liu believed that after the legal transfer of the ownership of the means of production to the state, the change in the relations of production was complete and the main task for the CCP was to develop the productive forces. Mao, on the other hand, believe that even though the means of production were transferred to the state, the changes in the relations of production were far from being complete. Moreover, there were also problems in the superstructure. These two fundamentally different analyses of the Chinese society were reflected in how Mao and Liu viewed the role of the Chinese Communist Party. From Liu's perspective, the main task of the CCP was to develop the productive forces. He believed that the CCP should create a stable environment for economic growth, and it should rely on the expertise of China's small number of technocrats to do the task. In order to ensure the spirit of communism, however, members of the CCP needed to purify themselves by following some guidelines on moral codes of behavior as they were set up in Liu's book, How to Be a Good Communist. Mao, on the other hand, regarded the enthusiasm of the masses as the main driving force behind real change in the relations of production and the superstructure. Further changes in the relations of production in the superstructure would release the potential forces of the masses. The enthusiasm of the masses, rather than the technical knowledge of a small elite group, was the key to advance the productive forces. History proves that Mao was right. Mao also saw the credibility of the CCP depended on its close link to the masses, and that members of the CCP should not be an elite group and place themselves above the masses. Instead, they had to subject themselves to the criticism of the masses. From the distinct differences in these two points of view, we can understand that Mao saw the role of the Chinese Communist Party as the agent for further fundamental changes in Chinese society, but Liu building a strong China as the main task of the Chinese Communist Party. Of course, 
There was no argument that China should be strong both economically and militarily in order to defend herself from the imperialists, but the argument was how to accomplish this and whether building a strong China was the only goal. To return to what we just said, Mao never saw the role of the CCP as a perpetuation of its own power. Rather, the CCP should continue to lead in the transition toward communism, and only by doing so could it claim to be the vanguard of the proletariat. C. The Material Basis of Bureaucracy Then there is the question of bureaucracy. Anyone who is familiar with the development in China since the revolution understands that bureaucracy has become a hindrance to change. To get anything done, one has to go through layers and layers of bureaucracy for approvals. Therefore, the question of bureaucracy and its relation with the CCP requires our attention. We, of course, also see the influence of feudalistic ideology on government officials and on people in general, but this backward ideology has been sustained by new material base after the Chinese Communist Party seized power. There is a difference between feudalistic attitude and work style of those in the leadership and a network of bureaucracy built on new material base of power. We can see the difference by comparing the situation before and after the CCP seized power. During the Revolutionary War, when the CCP led the peasants and workers to fight the KMT and the Japanese, Mao wrote articles to criticize the leadership style of the cadres. Mao saw the influence of the old ideology, old customs and habits on the cadres, and the problem of bureaucracy. He also saw the new leadership of the CCP needed to go through some basic and drastic changes in its relationship with the masses. Mao repeatedly emphasized that it was important for cadres to understand the masses, to learn from the masses, and to be concerned with the welfare of the masses. During the decades of the Revolutionary War, we witnessed the birth of a new breed of cadres, drastically different from the old corrupt KMT officials. These cadres were highly principled and disciplined. Many of them came from the ranks of workers and peasants and they maintained close links with the working people and led them to win the revolution. Old feudalistic ideology, habits, and customs had influences on these cadres, yet they were able to change their mode of thinking and world outlook through criticism and self-criticism. During the Revolutionary War, the survival and the expansion of the CCP depended on its close relationship with the masses. Mao said that the revolutionary soldiers were like fish, and the masses were like water, and fish needed water to swim in and to survive. Indeed, the peasants protected the 8th route soldiers from the KMT's attack, and they supplied the soldiers with grain and other necessities of life. The peasants knew these soldiers came from them and were fighting for their liberation. Only with the support of the masses was it possible for the communists to wage guerrilla warfare and win the revolution. After seizing power in 1949, the CCP established the People's Republic of China, which confiscated the bureaucratic capital of the KMT and nationalized 80% of the productive assets in industry, mining, transportation, and communication. The new government had to rely on the tens of thousands of bureaucrats to take care of the day-to-day -day operation of running a country. The administrative network included the different levels of state bureaucracy, the ministries, the bureaus, the departments, etc. Under the leadership of party cadres, the administrative units had to use many former KMT government officials who were notorious for their corruption and abuse of power. The masses had long known about the corruption and had strong resentment toward these officials. Moreover, in the early 1950s, there were also reported cases of corruption and waste among high-level party officials. Mao was very much concerned because, as he saw it, if this were allowed to continue, party officials who had just tasted real power could easily become new bureaucrats who would abuse the power. The CCP had such a high prestige that its members could enjoy as many privileges as those who had seized power and established new dynasties in China's long feudal history. This was when the CCP under Mao's leadership initiated the three anti and then the five anti movements. We will explain these movements in more detail in section D below. The three anti and five anti movements were significant not only because a total cleanup was necessary, but also because such movements were attempts to establish links between the CCP and the masses. During the revolution, the overwhelming majority of the people who had chosen to join the CCP were not motivated by self-interest. There was no personal gain by joining the party, and the higher one's rank, the more responsibilities and sacrifices one had to bear. The situation after 1949 changed totally. One's rank in the party determined the real power of the position once held in the state apparatus. The state machinery had the political, economic, and military power. 
The economic power of the state in a planned economy means an almost total control of the economic resources by state administrators. The State Planning Commission had the power to direct material and human resources to different sectors of the economy, as well as within a sector of the economy. The Planning Commission was in charge of the accumulation fund, which in fact was the surplus value. The authority to appropriate surplus value meant the power to determine where the investment and the expanded reproduction were to take place. Managers of enterprises had control over resources on a smaller, yet still substantial scale, linked to economic power where political power and military power. Furthermore, the concentration of power was reinforced by a selection process so that high-ranking state bureaucrats were at the same time high-ranking cadres and party officials. The CCP used the cadre system to select cadre to fill positions in the state apparatus. This interlocking system had the ability to reproduce itself. In fact, the state apparatus, the CCP, and the cadre system formed this mutually supportive and dependent relationship among them. Even though cadres of the CCP before and after 1949 were influenced by old ideology, old custom from the feudalist past, the difference was that after 1949, Party cadres and state administrators were in positions of power. Thus, they had the new material base to build a new system of bureaucracy. Therefore, we cannot simply blame the feudal past for the problem of bureaucracy. After 1949, the Chinese Communist Party no longer, at least in the short run, depended on the support of the masses. Instead, they had the power to control the masses. We want to emphasize here that we do not mean that the CCP did not use this power well during the socialist transition period between 1949 and 1978. To the contrary, the CCP did use that power well and led China in her transition towards socialism. Records show only a very small minority of the party, the government, officials abused their power. However, the link between the CCP and the power base existed objectively even though the majority of cadres were still highly principled and disciplined. Therefore, the potential danger was definitely there unless that power could somehow be checked. This shows why mass movements advocated and led by Mao were so important. D. The Mass Movement, Mao's Strategy for Change Under Mao Zedong's leadership, China had one unique experience during the socialist transition, the CPP sponsored a sequence of mass movements during the period between 1949 and 1978. All major changes during this period were accompanied by mass movements. Each mass movement reflected the principal contradiction at that time within Chinese society, and each movement was a process to resolve that contradiction. When the CCP mobilized the masses and movements to resolve contradictions, it acted as the agent for continual change in transforming the society. Earlier, we explained the mass movement during the land reform and how that movement changed China's peasant population. In the last section, we explained the significance of the three anti- and five anti-movements, from November 1951 to March 1952. The three anti-movements targeted corruption, waste, and bureaucracy. The movement mobilized all levels of government personnel and broad-based masses in many cities to expose bribery and other forms of corruption. Those who had committed crimes were duly punished according to the seriousness of their crimes. Among those punished were two high-level party officials who embezzled large amounts of public funds by taking large kickbacks from construction contracts and other dealings. Despite their high positions and previous contributions during the revolution, they received no protection from the government and were both put to death. Since public corruption could not be committed without the participation of private capitalists, the three anti-movement also exposed the collaboration between government officials and the private sector in stealing public property and other economic crimes. Some private capitalists seized the opportunity provided by the Korean War to make illegal profits by cheating on government contracts. They were able to bribe government officials to get what they wanted. Immediately following the three anti-movement, the party launched the five anti-movement and targeted bribery, tax evasion, theft of state property, cheating on government contracts, and stealing economic information. These campaigns were necessary and timely to make a clean break with the past as a private capital was soon to join the state-owned enterprises, requiring a closer cooperation between state bureaucrats and private capitalists. At this point, the contradiction between the Chinese people and the corrupt officials and capitalists who did not abide by the laws of the state was the principal contradiction. It was not possible to proceed to nationalization 
until this contradiction was resolved. In addition to the mass movement, Mao also saw the mass line communication as a way to maintain the link between the party and the masses. Mass line emphasized the importance of opinions expressed by the masses when policies concerning them were being implemented. It also emphasized mass participation in shaping these policies. In China, through the practice of the mass line, new ways of communication between the authority and the masses were established. For example, ways of communication include a method such as the, quote, three ups and three downs, unquote, and, quote, from the masses to the masses, unquote. These methods emphasize the importance of ideas and opinions coming from the masses. They were practical ways to solicit and articulate the opinions and ideas of the masses through the back-and-forth communication between the authority and the masses themselves. Another method involved the carrying out of experimental projects to test the feasibility of certain policies. The experimental projects also were ways to test what the masses wanted and what problems they experienced. To stay in close touch with the masses, cadres were also encouraged to stay with them for various lengths of time. This was called Dondian. During Dondian, cadres could make first-hand on-the-spot observations and conduct in-depth surveys. Findings so obtained would help the CCP in its analysis of the society and in determining the principal contradiction at the time. Policies could then be formulated to resolve it. Through these ways of communication, it was possible to find out whether a certain policy had the support of the masses, thus the material base for success. In reality, however, the practice of mass line did not in any way match the ideal as described. Instead of soliciting opinions and ideas from the masses, cadres sometimes saw themselves as carrying orders from above. This kind of attitude and practice of the cadres put barriers in the communication between the authority and the masses and promoted commandism in bureaucracy. Whether the cadres had followed the mass line or not should be tested in the mass movements. Mass movements provided an open forum where the masses could voice their opinions and express their discontent, criticizing party members for any wrongdoing and abuses of power. Participation in mass movements raised the consciousness of workers and peasants and generated new ideology. Major policies implemented during the socialist transition were accompanied by mass movements where new ideas were propagated and important issues debated. If such policies indeed promoted the interests of the masses, the masses would eventually adopt them. Mass movements in the past provided the opportunity for the government to seek the validation of its policies by the masses. Policies so validated had better chances to succeed. Mass movements also aroused the enthusiasm of the masses and empowered those who were in favor of the policy. We think that mass movements sponsored by the party in power is unusual, because authority usually fears not only that such movements might end up in chaos, but also that mass action might target the authorities themselves. Furthermore, we think that mass movements in the past were only the countervailing forces that challenged the concentration of power in the state and party apparatus, as well as the structural rigidity of China's bureaucratic system. During mass movements, cadres were subjected to the criticism of the masses and were forced to reform their bureaucratic style of management. To a large extent, the abuse of power was contained. However, before the Cultural Revolution, all mass movements were sponsored and organized by the CCP. It was only during the Cultural Revolution that young students and the masses began to organize themselves. Instead of having the CCP give direction to the movement, many initiatives came from below at the grassroots level. It was during the Cultural Revolution that, quote, seizing power, unquote, was first mentioned. Slogans such as, quote, making revolution is not a crime, open revolt has a reason, unquote, were widely publicized. This change in focus was very important because it was an open admission, for the first time, that the masses had the right to challenge those in power. It was true that this revolutionary ferment created a certain amount of chaos and some people were wrongly punished. However, it was important that the masses learn from this experience that they could challenge not only some corrupt officials in government, as in the past, but also the decisions made by the Central Committee of the CCP. The divine image of the CCP which could do no wrong was thus smashed. During the Cultural Revolution, attempts were made to search for an alternative to the existing power structure. One example was setting up the revolutionary committees to manage factories and other administrative functions. For reasons yet to be analyzed, these attempts failed. When we assess the Cultural Revolution from the viewpoint of proletariat, what the Cultural Revolution accomplished outweighed what it failed to accomplish. As Mao said, quote, it will take many more Cultural Revolutions to finish the task, unquote. Therefore, 
revolution continues. Since Deng and his supporters seized power in 1979, they had steadfastly pushed forward a set of projects that fitted well together in the broad framework of the reform. These projects, all capitalist in nature, have been carried out by the reformers through the passing of laws and issuing of decrees and administrative orders. In 1979, the reformers amended the Constitution and abolished the workers' right to strike and the right of free expression, see earlier discussion. Later, the reformers passed the contract labor law to legally abolish the permanent employment system in state enterprises. All of Deng's reforms programs were carried out by imposing on the masses legal or illegal action from above. The reformers prohibited mass movements of any kind. Deng's reform created many new contradictions in the Chinese society. Above all, the contradiction between the party bureaucrats and the masses stood out as the principal one. Without a mass movement, these contradictions had no outlet for expression, much less resolution. In the spring of 1989, these contradictions reached such a height that students began to demonstrate in China's major cities. Many millions of urban residents also joined in to express their discontent and to voice their complaint. People in China were following their long tradition of using mass movements to express their discontent. The only difference this time was that they did it spontaneously without the party's sponsorship. When the current Chinese regime decided that such direct confrontation could no longer be tolerated, they moved in the troops and ended it with the June 4th Tiananmen Massacre. Now, seven years after the massacre, the abuse of power and privileges by the bureaucrats, which was the main target of the demonstration, has not only continued but has become even more excessive. Even though the propaganda in newspapers has repeatedly announced that those people who committed economic crimes would duly be punished by law, People in China are well aware that only those who committed minor crimes were persecuted, because in these cases, the guilty ones did not have the backing of a higher-up. On the other hand, many cases of corruption involving the embezzlement of billions of RMB of public funds has been covered up, because the guilty ones in these cases had links to top-ranking officials in the CCP. Without a mass movement, there is no vehicle to expose the crimes committed by these top officials. We think that those who possess power have opportunities to enrich themselves by going along with the current regime. This opportunity existed objectively in the past despite the fact that many cadres accepted the ideology of, quote, serving the people, unquote, or, quote, serving their country, unquote, and that they looked down on the idea of, quote, enriching themselves, unquote. In the end, the objective social position was more important than personal belief. Before the reform began, the tendency to convert this concentration of power into something useful for the holders already existed. Deng's reform gave these power holders the green light. His reform legislation legitimized the conversion of state property into bureaucratic capital. After the reform, the bureaucrats at the national and provincial levels were no longer just in control of the surplus value. They had used the surplus to expand their bureaucratic capital. Thus, these bureaucrats have, in fact, become the exploiting class. Looking back, when Mao named a small handful of high-ranking party members as targets during the Cultural Revolution, he might have deliberately done so as a tactic to isolate the top leaders in the Liu Dang camp. E. Could new revolutionary forces be revived within the Chinese Communist Party? Before we address this question, we need to give a short summary of the four observations we made on the CCP above and relate them to the overall analysis of this paper. It seems clear that upon the completion of the land reform, the top leadership within the CCP became divided on which direction China should take in developing her society. Within the CCP, Mao and his followers chose socialism as the goal of China's transition, while Liu and Deng and their followers chose capitalism as the goal of China's transition. Looking back now, it seems clear that the majority of the CCP's top leaders did not fully understand the meaning of socialist transition or what it would take to reach socialism. When Liu and Dang pushed forward their capitalist projects, they disguised them as a better way to reach socialism because they claimed that these projects would develop productive forces faster. As far as their logic went, developing the productive forces faster would help build a strong China to defend socialism. As we said earlier, many communist leaders had joined the revolution because they regarded the CCP as the only hope for China's survival. Thus, Building a strong China had a great appeal to them. The majority of rank-and-file party members trusted Mao's leadership and followed the CCP's policies in the land reform and in the collectivization movement that followed. 
Throughout the long and hard struggle in the Revolutionary War, the workers and peasants came to trust the CCP and its leader, Mao Zedong. Their trust was twofold. One, the CCP was on their side, and two, the CCP had the correct strategy to lead them to their liberation. This trust continued after the establishment of the People's Government in 1949. They chose to follow the leadership of the CCP in the construction of a socialist country. They had not realized, however, until the Cultural Revolution, that the top leadership within the CCP was divided among themselves. During the socialist transition, the socialist projects benefited the workers and the majority of peasants who were implemented with their support. The CCP under Mao's leadership sponsored mass movements to solicit support from the workers and peasants. Mao's strategy of the worker-peasant alliance helped consolidate their support for the proletarian line. We think that the proletarian line dominated from 1949 to 1978 not because the majority of high-level party officials within the CCP supported it, but because Mao and a small but strong group of his supporters within the top leadership of the CCP and the majority of the rank-and-file party members continued to solicit the masses for their support for the socialist projects. If this is correct, then it is doubtful that we can say that during the socialist transition there was the dictatorship of the proletariat. Throughout this period, many times Liu and Deng were able to push forward their capitalist projects with their supporters in the CCP, also a minority, but only had to find their projects smashed during the recurrent mass movements. In our analysis of the development of bureaucracy in China earlier, we discussed the new material base of bureaucracy after the CCP seized power. The high-ranked party members, who are also high-level cadres and chief administrators in the state machine, have held tremendous amount of power since the beginning of the People's Republic. Up to 1978, their power was held in check, to large extent, by the recurrent mass movements. The majority of these party leaders did not abuse their power. They, as a group, with the help of the middle and lower-ranked cadres, contributed a great deal in running the country and managing production. However, their position as a state functionary who had power at their disposal limited their outlook. They saw running the country smoothly and keeping the production up in state enterprises and doing a good job in ensuring the supplies of food and other necessities of life as their duty to socialism. Their idea of socialism was that once the means of production were transferred to the state and to the collectives, the transition to socialism was complete. They often lacked the understanding of the necessity for continuing change. They thus played an important role in maintaining the status quo and in the perpetuation of hierarchy of functionaries at different levels of government. Moreover, they often resisted changes, if they saw these changes threaten their power base. During the Cultural Revolution, some of them were being criticized for their lack of cooperation in implementing new policies. It was said that they would, quote, lie down and play dead, unquote, when they resisted implementing policies that they did not like. Mao also criticized high-level officials in the Department of Public Health for turning themselves into old-time mandarins who were out of touch with problems concerning the public health of the general population. It was the Cultural Revolution that brought the proletarian line and the bourgeois line into sharp focus. The majority of workers and peasants and the rank-and-file party members had just begun to understand the difference between the socialist projects put forward by Mao through mass movements and the capitalist projects pushed forward by Liu and Deng in the top-down fashion. During the 16 years of Deng's reform, the majority of workers and peasants, through their continuing struggle against the capitalist projects imposed on them by the reformers, have come to understand much more the true nature of Deng's reform and to appreciate what they had lost. This is evident from the love and respect they have expressed toward Mao in recent years. It seems clear now in hindsight that during the Cultural Revolution, Mao was the minority in the CCP leadership. As we said earlier, the Cultural Revolution made attempts to find an alternative to the power structure that existed in the CCP and in the state machine, but it did not succeed. As the Cultural Revolution progressed, the majority of high-ranking party members saw their power base threatened, and thus did not support it. It seems also clear now that Deng's reform since 1979 has had the support of high-ranking party elite within the CCP. In the beginning of Deng's reform, high-ranking party members who were committed to the proletarian line, Chen Yunku was an example, were kicked out of the CCP. Deng's support came from a coalition of different groups who found a common interest in the capitalist projects in Deng's reform. Only with their support has Deng's reform, clearly opposing the interest of the workers and peasants, been able to go this far. This coalition took advantage of the contradictions that had developed in the mid-1970s, see our explanation earlier, 
and solicited the support of those who had gained from the implementation of capitalist projects. During the 16 years of Deng's reform, the contradictions within the Chinese society have been sharpened. The principal contradiction is now between the broad masses and the high-ranking corrupted party-slash-government officials who enrich themselves by robbing the people and by selling China's interests to the foreign monopoly capital. In the process of carrying out Deng's reform, differences developed in the coalition that supported Deng. To the right of Deng were those who did not think Deng's reform was deep enough or fast enough to transform China towards capitalism. They used the dissatisfaction of the students and masses to voice their own discontent in 1989 without success. During the past few years, when Deng's reform encountered insurmountable difficulties, party elites on the left of Deng began to express their concerns. These party elites see the danger of continuing deterioration of the CCP's reputation and influence. On the one hand, they realize that the CCP has lost the support of the broad masses. On the other hand, they see that as private ownership and joint ventures with foreign capital continue to increase, the emerging new capitalist class are demanding political representation. Thus, they fear that the CCP may follow the fate of the Communist Party of the former Soviet Union and face eventual demise. It seems likely that after Deng dies, this group may gain control of the CCP. If it does, it may institute policies that would pull back some of Deng's reform and clean up some of the corruption. However, it is questionable that this group of party elites would reverse the transition from capitalism to socialism and trust the masses enough to involve them in this fundamental change. This is not to deny that within the CCP, there remain many members who still believe in socialism and see the harm of Deng's reform has done to China. However, these party members have not been able to oppose Deng's reform. What they will be able to do in the future remains to be seen. On the other hand, during the past 16 years, the CCP has recruited a large number of new members who have no commitment to socialism and only see joining the CCP as a way for self-advancement. These Communist Party members will also play a role in the future development. 3. Conclusion In this essay, we presented our analysis of the socialist transition in China and the reverse of this transition from socialism to capitalism. The analysis is based on the concrete experiences of China in the past 40-some years, we quoted what Lenin said about the road to socialism earlier in this essay. He said, quote, We do not claim that Marx or the Marxists know the road to socialism in all its completeness. That is nonsense. We know the direction of this road. We know what class forces lead it along. But concretely and practically, it will be learned from the experiences of the millions who take up the task, unquote. During the past 80 years, thousands of millions have taken up the task to advance their societies towards socialism. Unfortunately, the first round of attempts to build socialism failed. We need to learn from their valuable experiences because thousands of millions will take up the task again in the future. Socialism has not failed because we have not yet entered its threshold.